Please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We are approaching the end of our series of studies in the book of Ecclesiastes. This morning we will be looking at chapter 11, the first six verses. This is God's holy, inerrant, and powerful, life-transforming word. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, or even to eight, for you do not know, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know what will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. If you've been with us very long, you know that I often refer to movies in my sermons. And that's because I see movies as windows into the soul of our culture. Our movies are the stories of our culture. And those stories reflect, like the stories of any culture, reflect our values, our hopes, our dreams, our inner struggles, our worldview. Well, lately, I don't know if you've noticed this as well, but as I think back over recent years, there's been a huge increase in what I would label apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic or uh, sometimes called dystopian movies. Movies that portray a dark future for mankind. A dark future that comes after some worldwide catastrophe or world wars or some great oppressor that rises, some technology that takes over society. But a very dark view of the future is the subject matter of so many movies recently. To prove my theory, and actually it doesn't prove it, it's not scientific at all, I went to my favorite scientific site to find research and evidence for anything I, that uh, I believe about society, Wikipedia. <laughs> and what I found, it's amazing what you'll find in Wikipedia, they actually have a list of apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic, and dystopian movies from the last 50, 60 years. And again, this isn't scientific, I know it doesn't prove anything, but it was interesting to me that if I looked at their list, and as I looked at it, it clearly wasn't exhaustive, but as you looked at the list, they, they helpfully had it categorized by decade. And I counted up the movies in the list, and in the decade of the 1970s, there were 33 movies that they applied that label to. In the 1980s, there were 32 of those kinds of movies, in the 1990s, there were 35 of those kinds of movies listed, but between 2000 and 2010, there were 62 movies of that sort listed, and since 2011, last five years, 
there have been 60 of those types of movies just in half of a decade. Doesn't prove anything, but I think nobody would disagree with me that there has been a rash of movies that portray a very dark future for mankind recently. And the truth is that we process our hopes and our fears and our values and our feelings of guilt through our arts and entertainment. It's a window to our souls. So what does this increasing preoccupation with a dark future say about us as a society? Well, look around. Our economy is clearly a house of cards. Our government is paralyzed and ineffective due to infighting. Terrorism has us all feeling insecure. Terrorism both home and abroad. And the standards of morality are changing at such a breakneck speed that it leaves us feeling insecure because we don't feel like we have any moral boundaries. There is no definition any longer of right and wrong. So, in spite of living in one of the most prosperous and stable cultures in the history of mankind, we are fearful of our future. And we have a strong sense of imminent danger and disaster. And somehow we think in some subconscious way, that if we just go to doomsday movies and we somehow survive the two and a half hours of watching the movie, that somehow we've faced our fears and we've survived. I have a better way to face your fears. Let's go to the Word of God. Let's go to the book of Ecclesiastes. Because the book of Ecclesiastes as we have found it over these many months of studying together, is such a clear and accurate view of what the world is under the sun. We've been guided through a tour of the world under the sun by the one we call Professor Q. This fictional voice that the writer, whether Solomon or whoever it was who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, a, a, a wise teacher who is a student and a, a scientist, so to speak, who studies with his five senses everything that you can know in it by experience under the sun. And by under the sun, he means without divine revelation, without direction, spoken word from God to guide us. What can you know just by observing life in this fallen world? And the one, one of the main themes that has come through this book is that Q tells us that life under the sun is uncertain, unpredictable, chaotic, and way too often unfair and unjust. And so, he says, over and over again, if this is all there is, life is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. We saw back in chapter 9, verse 11, just to give you an example of his perspective, he says, I saw that under the sun... The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. In other words, you cannot predict the future based on what you know about the present. Time and chance. Now, of course, we've seen also that it's not that he doesn't believe in a creator. 
He does. It's not that he believes in some distant God who doesn't know anything about what's going on on the earth. He believes in a sovereign God. We've seen that over and over, that God is intimately in control of the details of what happens under the sun. But what's troubling from Q's self-defined worldview is that he cannot figure out what God is doing under the sun. He recognizes there's a powerful, sovereign creator, God, who directs all things, but you look at the chaotic, unpredictable, meaningless array of events under the sun, and he says, who can know what God is doing? To give you an example of those kinds of statements, chapter 8, verse 17, he says, I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However, however much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. And that's what drives Q at times. It sounds like almost to the point of despair. Why cannot I understand what God is doing by looking at what's happening on earth? Well, in this final section of Ecclesiastes, Q begins to give wise advice of how to live under the sun in light of his picture, is accurate insofar as it goes, picture of reality under the sun. How are we to live? Well, here in chapter 11, he addresses how do we live in the face of uncertainty? Because that's what our future is. It's absolutely uncertain, unpredictable. And the first thing he says in this passage is that we must accept that uncertainty and unpredictability. We must accept it, embrace it even, and stop trying to control it. We think about so much of our daily life, we are actually, if we could analyze what we're doing and how we live our lives day in and day out, so many things about what we do is is us trying to control our future. On verse 1, We have this verse, I'm sure for many of you this is a familiar verse, you've heard this verse probably many times in your life. A lot of Ecclesiastes is is unfamiliar and unobscure to us, but this is a familiar verse, you've heard it. How many of you really understood it when you first heard it? What what this verse is really trying to say, and I'm not sure I fully understood it until this week when I really dug into it. I remember when I first heard this verse quoted, cast your bread upon the waters for you'll find it after many days, the thought stuck with me, why would I throw my bread into the water first of all and secondly why would I want to find this soggy bread after many days (laughs) well obviously this is an analogy a cultural analogy that goes over our heads here in the 21st century some interpreters think that what Q is saying here is that we need to be generous with the resources in our lives we need to give to others we particularly need to give to the needy. We need to cast our bread out there and kind of a, a pay it forward kind of an idea that uh, if, you, if you give to those in need that somehow the blessing will come back to you someday. Or give a portion to seven or eight. Be generous. Give, give away a lot in, in, in confidence that the blessing will come back to you someday. And that's not an entirely unbiblical idea. Not in the health and wealth sort of way where if you invest $10, God will bring you $100 back. But in, it's biblical in the sense that If you give to the needy out of faith in the Lord, he will bless you, not in kind usually, but he'll bless you, and that's certainly true. That's what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 6, verse 38. He said, give and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. 
for with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. So that is a biblical concept, and that could be the right interpretation of verse 1. But I think, and most interpreters disagree with that, because of the context of the book of Ecclesiastes. First of all, Q in the book of Ecclesiastes doesn't stress giving to the needy anywhere, so it would be a new thought if he introduces it here. But particularly in this context, he seems to be talking about particularly a farmer's lifestyle, a farmer's work, a farmer's business. And we'll be talking about that in a more, more in a moment. So in that context, probably what verse 1 is talking about is investment. Bear with me. What he's saying here, and it helps if you understand that the first word is actually not the best translation. I'm not sure why the modern translations hold on to the word cast, because in the original Hebrew, a much better translation, more accurate, is send. Send your bread upon the water. And what's interesting, when that word is used in other places in the Old Testament, it's used where, say, King Solomon, for instance, in one example, sends ships out upon the seas. And so the idea is to send your bread upon ships, upon seas. And so he's talking about, actually, maritime trade. He's talking about taking resources, and he's working in a farming context here. You you plant you harvest, you take your harvest of grain, you put it on ships, and you, you, set, you let the, the, the ship set sail for other markets that are appealing, that are more profitable. And so that's the idea that he's stressing here. When you work hard, as you should do under the sun, and you produce, because of your work, a harvest, then you should seek to invest that to multiply it wisely and do it with aggressiveness, so to speak. You get that sense in what he says here. Now, you have to understand that, of course, this was risky. It would be much safer to take your grain or your harvest, whatever it is, down to the markets in in, in the middle of the town where you live and sell it there. But you're not going to get the kind of profit, you're not going to get the kind of income from that if you were to have it shipped somewhere where the need is greater and the money is more available. And so that's what he's talking about, is you know, take the risk. And there was risk. I mean, you put, your, put all of your harvest on ships, a lot of bad things could happen at that point. Storms could sink the ship. The storm could be so bad that the sailors throw your cargo overboard to save the ship. Or pirates could attack either going or coming, with your harvest or with the profits when they come back. And it's going to take a long time before you actually see the profits from your trade. And so it was risky, and it took a lot of patience. So it's really, there's a principle here of investment that is really a biblical principle. If that's the case in verse 1, then verse 2 you read differently. Because it's not talking about giving to the needy in that context, it's talking about what? diversification of your investment. In other words, if you take all your harvest and put it on one ship and it sinks, then you've lost everything. So in that context, give it, give your portion, give your harvest to multiple ships, to multiple markets, because some of those markets are going to fail, some of those ships are going to sink, some of them are going to get attacked by pirates. But if you diversify in your investment, you will get some back at least, and it'll be a wise way to handle the resources that you've provided. In our our current cliche, it would say, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Why? 
You drop the basket, you lose all your eggs. Put your eggs in a couple of baskets. And he would say seven or eight baskets so you wouldn't lose all your eggs if you drop one. You see, it's all in the context of what he says at the end of verse 2. For you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. We've seen that Q is a pessimist. He doesn't blindly ignore the fact that storms come, pirates attack, disasters happen. And that's a driving factor in his worldview of what he expects in day-to-day life. In verses 3 and 4, he actually describes probably two of those uncertainties about life. Um, he He actually describes two truisms there. First of all, saturated clouds will bring storms and trees will fall unexpectedly. Those are uncertainties in life. You never know when a storm's going to hit. You never know when a tree's going to drop. Now, that could be an act of providence from God because maybe you're in a drought and you need a good storm. Or maybe you're out of firewood and a tree drops in your backyard and like, there you are. You didn't have to drop the tree. It's right there, you know, tailor-made for you. Maybe that's what he's saying in a positive way. But certainly both these things could be negative. A storm could destroy your crops and destroy your harvest. A tree could fall in your house. So you just don't know. Really what he's illustrating is that life is filled with uncertainties and you need to just accept that fact. You know, when he speaks of the storms, I mean, I I say it all the time, but the weather is is an act of uh, where God teaches us every day to say you're not in control of your life. We would love to pre-program the weather. We try to pre-program everything about our coming week, if we could somehow dial up the right weather to match the activity that we have for any given day, that would be a wonderful thing, but God doesn't allow us to do that, because we're not in control. It's, again, it's one of those ways through, through creation, through natural revelation, that he reminds us, we're not in control. Life is unpredictable. It is full of uncertainty. Verse 5 is interesting. Seems like he's a little out of context here, but he throws in Something that the hand of God, and he attributes it directly to the hand of God, does in our lives that is unpredictable, that's uncertain. He says, as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you don't know the work of God who makes everything. First of all, you probably have never heard of that verse as a pro-life verse, but boy, what a powerful statement. That God brings soul and body together in the womb of the mother. Therefore, that is an an independent human life made in the image of God, woven together by God, and should be protected as life. But having said that, the point here is that that whole thing is so mysterious. The whole process is so mysterious, so not understood, especially in that day. It was unpredictable. It was not understood. But, you know, in spite of all of our technological and medical advances, it's still a great mystery, isn't it? What a wonderful thing. If you've ever seen those videos of the development of a child, you know, from the first splitting of the cell to the, to the finished child, it's an amazing thing to watch, and it, it, it looks miraculous to us. Even where we're able to observe it in the womb, it still looks miraculous to us. We don't understand how this happens. It's the hand of God who makes all things, who literally, it says, who does all things. He's doing that. And even though we participate in it, ultimately it's out of our control. And again, it underlines this same point. You do not know. Notice how many times it says that in these six verses? Four times in six verses it says, you do not know, you do not know, you do not know. 
That's the point he's trying to drive home. Those of us who are trying to control the future in our insecurity, he says, you do not know. Life is full of uncertainty. How then should we live? Well, the bottom line of this passage is live faithfully and live boldly. And do it by investment. I, I, I want to underline the fact that investment is something that God created us to do with the resources that he places in our hands. Send your bread. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. Invest, diversify. Be a good steward of the resources that God has placed under your oversight and control. Both physical resources and spiritual resources. We are to work and to produce and then to enjoy consuming what we produce, to save what we produce, to give away to the needy what we produce, and also to invest what we produce to try to multiply the effect of our labor. That's what God created us to do. We were created to be productive in the image of God. In Matthew 25, Jesus told a very familiar parable, but it underlines this point about what discipleship is all about. In Matthew 25, he talked about a rich man who, when he was about to go on a long trip and was going to be away for a long time, he took and gave a great deal of money into the hands of three trusted servants. To one he gave, it says, five talents. Talents was a measurement of money, and it was a great deal of money. And he put five talents under the control of one of the most gifted servant and, and left it for him to manage. The second was given two according to his talent. He was given two sums of money to, to deal with, to oversee while he was gone. And then he gave one to a, to a third servant. Well, what happened while he was gone is that the first multiplied the five amounts of money he was given into five more. He doubled it. The second multiplied the two into four. He doubled it as well. The third guy buried it. He chose the safe option. He didn't invest. He didn't trade. He didn't do anything with it. He wanted to be sure to at least give back to his his master what he was given. So he chose the safe option and buried it. And you know what happened. The master took away what he was given and cast him into outer darkness. Jesus is teaching a very important principle about what discipleship is about. That discipleship is being a steward of what God has given, and part of that stewardship is to invest what he has placed in our hands, to try to multiply the resources he has given so that we can be a blessing to others in giving, so that we can we can fund the work of the kingdom, many good purposes, but we are expected to be producers, not just by working, but also by investing. Derek Kidner is one of my favorite Old Testament commentators, and on this verse in Ecclesiastes 11, he says this, if there's risk in everything, it's better to fail in living boldly than in living safely, hugging one's resources. And so often we think that Hugging the resources, burying the resources that God has given us and not using them. You know why we do that? We're trying to control the future. We're trying to make sure that when the disasters come, which Q promises they're going to come, we want to make sure we can provide for ourselves. We can depend on our own resources. 
We're trying to control the future. We're trying to protect ourselves against disaster. And so there's really, in Ecclesiastes, as well as in the rest of Scripture, this sense that we are not to live fearing the future, but we are to be boldly trusting in the Lord and using the resources he has given us in a wise and, dare I say it, aggressive way of trying to multiply what he has placed under our control. That brings me to the second point, which actually is backtracking. That's talking about what you've done with the resources once your work has has produced it. But he goes on to talk about the work itself in verses 4 and 6. We have to work faithfully and diligently no matter what comes. He says in verse 4, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. In verse 6 he says, In the morning sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. He's saying, stop trying to prepare for the future. Now, now again, there there, there are other verses where it talks about the ant preparing for the future. It's a good thing, saving, and there's a reasonable amount of that in stewardship. But he's talking about living in faith, trusting in the Lord. And he's saying, just be faithful, be diligent, work hard, and leave the consequences to the Lord. Don't concern yourself about the storms that will come. Just sow, plant, cultivate, harvest, and then do it all over again next year. Whatever that looks like in your calling, whether you're a, a teacher or a student or a lawyer or a doctor or a garbage collector, whatever your calling in life is, plant, cultivate, harvest, And do it all over again in faithfulness because that's what you're put here to do. Work is being, work is, when we work, we are actually reflecting the glory and the image of God because we serve a working God. He says, do not withhold your hand. In other words, and literally in Hebrew, it means don't let your hands down. Don't, Don't get weary and quit. Press on especially when it gets hard, especially when the storms come, especially when the disasters hit. And he goes on to say, you do not know which which will prosper. He's talking about whether, you know, planting in this field or planting in that field or or putting this uh, harvest on that ship or this ship or that ship. You don't know. God's in control of the disasters and, and the blessings of the future. Just be faithful. Maybe half your efforts will be fruitful, he says. Or maybe they both will. Or maybe neither will. But that's not for you to be concerned about. Since I moved up here four years ago, I, uh, it was great timing. I've never been a hockey fan, but I moved up here right at the same time that the Penn State hockey program became a dis- Division I sport. And it's been fascinating over the last three and a half, four years to watch Penn State hockey, the men's and women's hockey, become really very, a very, they're very good hockey teams these days. And they've done it very quickly. But one of the things that really strikes me as you watch it, I've never been a big hockey fan, but I've been going to games since I've been here, and it's fun to watch. And I never thought hockey was fun to watch. I always put it in the same category as soccer, sorry. But, but you know, just... <laughs> not, enough, not enough scoring was my big complaint. Not enough scoring in soccer and hockey. But, man, this Penn State hockey team, they score all the time. They are the highest scoring team in the Division I hockey. I think they still are. And the reason they are, it's because of the philosophy, and I read about this in the paper, it's the philosophy of the coach, Coach Godowski. His philosophy is, he tells his players, shoot early and shoot often. 
Don't wait for the perfect shot. Don't pass and pass and pass. If you get a chance, you shoot. Just totally storm the goal with, with shots on goal because some of them will go in. And lo and behold, they're the one of, if not one of them, if not the highest scoring hockey team in college hockey. That's really what Q is saying, you know. Just be faithful. Don't, you know, don't fret about things so much. Just keep doing what you're supposed to be doing and trust the Lord to bless your efforts. Disaster may hit. You may get shut out. You may lose. That's okay. All you're being asked to do is be faithful. You see, trust in God's sovereign will. You know, I keep saying this. Q, even though he doesn't have the whole picture because he only looks under the sun, he does believe in a sovereign God who has a plan and purpose. That he's totally in control of all the details. That view is 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 at the foundation of what used to be called the Puritan work ethic. It's what drove people to work hard in the early days of this country. Because they believed in a sovereign God who had a plan and purpose behind everything. And that plan and purpose included disasters. It included storms. It included suffering. And the Puritan work ethic understood that, that we weren't going to understand what God was doing. And it understood that we were, our crops were going to fail sometimes. And our children were going to die sometimes. And that life was going to be difficult but that God has a good plan and purpose behind everything. And and the view of providence, and providence was such a strong aspect of that worldview. The idea of providence was, yes, God provides everything we need, and God is active in every detail of our lives, but he doesn't provide usually by dropping things from the sky into our lap. That God provides through the work of others. God provides the clothing on our back, yes, but he provides it through work. The work of many people. Yes, God provides a house, a home, a a roof over our heads, but he provides it through work, the work of others. God provides food, but he provides it through the work of others. God provides the preaching of the word, but he provides it through others. God rarely directly intervenes to provide for our needs. He works through others, and that's the the noble aspect of work. That's why one of the, the catchphrases of the Reformation that Martin Luther Uh, put on the lips of everybody at that time, was the priesthood of all believers. And we think about that in terms of access to God's presence, but it had many implications for life, and one of those implications was that the work of the farmer in the field is just as important as the work of the preacher in the pulpit. That God is providing by both means for his people. And so all work was honorable in the sight of God. All work is reflecting the image of God in our lives. That's why when you think about Q, we so often have heard what we call the carpe diem passages, the seize the day passages where he says, you know, hey, life is meaningless, so work hard, enjoy your bread, enjoy your wine, you know. And and, and we've understood that in light of saying, hey, these are good things that God provides. Enjoy your work, enjoy your food, And, of course, Q's perspective is that's the best you're going to get if death is the end of everything. So he doesn't have the whole picture, but what he says is true insofar as it goes. Work is good. We should work hard. Enjoy. Consume the fruit of our labor. Give away the fruit of our labor. Invest the fruit of our labor. That's being godly. 
That's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And we understand that God has not guaranteed any of the blessing to us in this life. You see, quiet, faithful work is underrated in the kingdom of God these days. Quiet, faithful work. Matter of fact, if, I, if I've heard one descriptor of this current generation in this country, it's that it has a terrible work ethic. We need a Puritan work ethic, but you've got to understand that a great work ethic comes out of a great biblical worldview. And that's what Q has laid before us here. And that's what the rest of Scripture expounds upon. Remember when, when God sent his exiles into Babylon. You know, talk about a time when they could have just checked out for a while. But when he sent his exiles into Babylon, the Jewish people into Babylon, he said to them, go build houses, plant fields, harvest crops, bear children, bear grandchildren, pray for your community, serve your community. Quiet, diligent, persistent faithfulness is what God blesses. That's discipleship. Paul says to the Thessalonian Christians in 1 Thessalonians 4, we urge you to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But that brings me to the one big element that's missing from Q's worldview. Remember he talked about God's mysterious hand. That God's hand is, is, is active in everything that happens under the sun, but he can't find it out. Even the wisest man, he says, can't find it out by observing things under the sun. But God has revealed his plan. God has revealed his purpose. We always come to that at the end of these messages in Ecclesiastes because that's the purpose of Ecclesiastes is to say, what is the plan? What is God doing under the sun? Hasn't he told us? Absolutely he has told us. You know, thinking about that, just the fact that God's plan is revealed in the big picture, it, it reminds me of what James says, because James actually addresses, he addresses rich people in, in the book of James, and he's condemning them for investing and working hard and planning. He condemns them because they're doing it in pride. Let me just read that passage to you. You'll notice the contrast between what Q is exhorting us to do. He says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You know, isn't that what Q wants us to do? Well, he says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. You see... That's your workaholic. That's your person who works hard, industrious, entrepreneur, very successful under the sun, but is not trusting in the Lord, but one who is trying to control his future, trying to eliminate the unpredictability and the uncertainties through his own effort in arrogance. He says, you need to learn by, to, to live by saying, if the Lord wills, I will do this. If the Lord wills, I will do this. That God is sovereign, God is in control, that was a phrase that used to be tacked on to every planning statement in Puritan America. And now we don't say it anymore, and I think it reflects our worldview. Lord willing, I will meet you tomorrow for lunch. Lord willing, I will sell my business next week. Lord willing, you know, that, that used to be the driving perspective. It's part of that biblical worldview. 
You see, God's people are to live boldly and faithfully in spite of the fact that we don't know the future and we don't control the future because the Lord is good and the Lord is in control and we trust his plan and his purpose even when we don't fully understand it. Deuteronomy 29, 29, Moses says to the people of Israel, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. I love that distinction that Moses makes there between what God has revealed and what he hasn't revealed. There are a lot of things, about, especially about the future, that God has not revealed. And he says, leave those things to God. Trust him for those things. You worry about what he has revealed. That's what discipleship is about. You seek to be faithful and obedient to what he has revealed to us through his word. And I say this often to people who come to me and they're wrestling with big decisions in life. And we live in a community where there are a lot of people in transition wrestling with big questions about their life. Who am I going to marry? What job am I going to take? Where am I going to live? Those are huge questions. And we get all paralyzed trying to figure them out. And I always say the first step is how are you doing on his revealed will? You're trying to figure out and control his unrevealed will. You can't know that answer yet. How are you doing with his revealed will? Are you seeking the kingdom first? Are you staying in the word? Are you living in in relative obedience as a disciple of Christ? Focus on his revealed will, and I guarantee you that if you are faithful and diligent in pursuing his revealed will, he will guide you into the things of the future that you can't know in the present, and he will bless you. Revelation is really the question, isn't it? Revelation from God. Knowing his plan and purpose. And that's the beauty of the book of Ecclesiastes is it points us to the rest of scripture where that plan and purpose of God for all of history is revealed clearly through Jesus Christ, his eternal son. Jesus Christ came to earth to reveal the overall plan and purpose in all of its fullness, everything we need to know to live our lives, not just faithfully and effectively, but contentedly, at peace, in spite of all the uncertainties around us. That's why Paul in the New Testament calls Christ in us the mystery of God. In the New Testament, when it talks about mystery, it's not something we can't understand. A mystery in the New Testament is something that you cannot understand unless God reveals it to us, and that is what he has done in Jesus Christ We know the big picture. We know what's beyond the sun, above the sun. We know what's after death. So we need to focus in order for true peace and joy and contentedness and effectiveness and a discipleship. We need to focus on that sure reward. No matter how many uncertainties and dangers we face in this life under the sun, there are two absolute certainties that we base our life upon. And Paul gives both of them to us in 1 Corinthians 15. He addresses the first certainty in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, and he looks to the past, something you can be sure about from the past. You know, it's really hard to be sure about anything from the past these days because they keep revising history all the time. But there is something that God has revealed to us about the past that you had better stake your life on. And Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Stake your life on that being true. Secondly, the other thing that you can be certain about, this is the one thing that you can be certain about for the future. Q would say the one thing you can be certain about for the future is what? Death. But if you know Christ, you may not die. He may come again. 
That's the one thing you're certain about. He may come again in your lifetime, so you may not die. But the one thing you can be certain about as a believer in the future is that he is coming again. And that's what Paul gets to at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Stake your life on that. It's as certain as the crucifixion and resurrection was 2,000 years ago. It's that certain he's coming back again, and he will complete the work of salvation that he began in you. He's promised, and he is faithful, and he will do it. You know, we still don't control or understand our future. If you're a believer, no matter how closely you walk to the Lord Jesus Christ, your life is filled with uncertainty, I guarantee it. Faith doesn't remove our ignorance of the future. What it does is it enables us to live with that uncertainty in peace and joy and contentment and hope and diligence because we are certain of those two things. Christ died and was raised from the dead for our salvation and he is coming again to complete his work. That's all I need to know. I've built my whole life on those two facts. It enables us to live faithfully and boldly, no matter how many uncertainties we face, no matter what tragedies and storms may come our way. Early in my ministry, I've told this story many times, so I apologize if you've heard it before, but it was such a transforming moment for me. Early in my life, my career, my ministry, I was a young man, wrestling with a lot of these big questions at that stage of life, you know, that you tend to wrestle with, and I had an opportunity to move myself and my young family halfway across the country and start a new ministry. And I was deeply torn over whether I should take this opportunity or not. It was something, it was part of God's unrevealed will for my life. And in my immaturity and in my fears, I did everything I could to try to figure out the right answer. And so I did what a lot of us do is I made a long list. You know, you make a list down one side of the page of your pros, and you make a list down the other side of the page of cons, and mine got to be like three pages long. It's just this, this infinite list of pros and cons. And I'm sitting there, I spent weeks trying to get one to outweigh the other. You know, the, the, the answer had become obvious. And it just got so frustrating because it just seemed to balance out. And I was totally at loss as to what the Lord wanted me to do. And so I did what you should do in a situation like that. I went to a wiser, more mature, more, somebody who understood God's word better than I did, a good friend of mine, Bob. And I said to Bob, I said, Bob, help me. Look at this list. Does, something, does the answer jump out to you as you look at my list of pros and cons? And I expect him to take those three pages and, and study them carefully and maybe get back to me in a day or two. He looked at it, spent about five seconds looking at it, and threw it aside and said, start laughing. I said, Bob, what are you laughing at me for? This is, this is, this is t- deeply distressing to me. He said something that sounds maybe a little off at first, but he, what he said was, Dan... God doesn't care that much about your circumstances. You're so caught up and worried about all the circumstances, whether you're living here or living halfway across the country or whether you're ministering in this church or that church. You're all caught up in all this. God doesn't care nearly as much as you do about all those circumstances. What he cares about is your faithfulness. If you're faithful to him and his word and to the Lord Jesus Christ here or there or anywhere, he will bless your work. Make that your focus and trust him to take care of the unpredictabilities. Such a simple word of advice, but I've remembered it every day since then. 
that that's what discipleship is about. Faithfulness to what he has revealed and trusting him for the things that he's not yet revealed. Knowing that he has a plan and a purpose that is all about the risen and ascended and reigning Jesus Christ who is coming again. That's what life is about. That's what Ecclesiastes is meant to point us to. Galatians 6, 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And by his grace, if we belong to him, we won't. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the promise of the kingdom. Thank you that it's already here, that it's spreading as the gospel leads sinners to come to acknowledge Christ as King and Savior. But Lord, we thank you that we have the assurance that because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, that the kingdom will come in all of its fullness one day, and that all the work we do for the glory and honor of Christ will be rewarded And Lord, we will rejoice in your presence forever that death has been defeated, that we belong to Christ and we will be with him in his love and in his provision and in the glory of his presence for all eternity. Lord, thank you for that hope. May we live our lives accordingly in this life under the sun. In Christ's name we pray, amen.